This was match 26 in Major League Soccer this season. Rodriguez sending it in. It was a Sunday night in Los Angeles. LAFC is just about to even the score against the Philadelphia Union in the 71st minute. That goal by Eddie Sugiera on March 8th would be the last goal scored in the 2020 MLS regular season before the league suspended play. Major League Soccer will also suspend their 2020 season for at least 30 days. The home opener for Inter-Miami will not happen this weekend. Major League Soccer announced it's suspending the season. Exactly four months later, Major League Soccer is returning to the pitch this week in their month-long MLS's back tournament based out of the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex in Florida. As we've seen over the last month, returning to play sounds easy, but it comes with its fair share of obstacles. In the case of MLS, negotiations between the league and its players got loud, angry, logical at times, and very complicated. During a call in April, some of the league's biggest stars, including Nani, Josie Altidore, Michael Bradley, and Chicharito expressed their reluctance in the league's return-to-play plan. Just over a month later, league commissioner Don Garber threatened players with a lockout. Paul Tenario is a national soccer reporter for The Athletic, and Luis Robles is the star goalkeeper for expansion Inter-Miami, who sits on the executive board of the Major League Soccer Players Association. They join us on this edition of the Sports on Pause podcast. So in what is the 25th anniversary of MLS soccer, this was supposed to be a very big year for the MLS, and what they didn't envision was a tournament played in a bubble in Orlando, Florida. But here we are. This is what's happening. But how did we get here? What was the negotiation like? Paul, please inform us. Yeah, so um, when sports shut down, Major League Soccer had played two regular season games. And they ended up shutting things down on a Friday just before the third set of games started. And pretty quickly after that, relatively speaking, Major League Soccer started to put into motion a plan to try to get back out on the field. And the reasons are basic. You know, unlike many professional leagues in North America, MLS is dependent on game day revenue. You know, they don't have a humongous TV deal to fall back on. And so when you talk about playing no games or playing games without fans, they were taking a significant hit. And initially, the league was thinking, you know, it would be a worst case scenario to come back and play games without fans. But eventually, as this started to look like a longer term shutdown, the league recognized it needed to recover revenue somewhere. And that somewhere was focused on national TV games and making your TV partners happy getting some sponsorship dollars activated again with those TV deals and finding a way to reach more fans than MLS typically does. And so in late March, they started to have discussions between the league and the players. And almost immediately, the players were pushing back on the league's idea to try to come back with a a neutral site game in Orlando. And, you know, those first phone calls between hundreds of players in the league and MLS Commissioner Don Garber, as well as a couple owners, including Vancouver owner, Greg Kerfoot, DC United owner Steve Kaplan, you know, the players voiced opposition to coming back and playing an eight to 10 week tournament away from home, away from families. And that pretty much kicked off the negotiations. And over the next couple months, 
there was a back and forth that essentially, you know, renegotiated a CBA that had been agreed to but not ratified in February. And ultimately, you know, they were renegotiating the CBA. And the idea was to try to spread out these losses that the league has taken in the short term uh, over time. And the way that they did that was for the players to give back money over the life of the CBA by pushing back the terms of the agreement by a year and also to extend the CBA by a year. And the projection with that was that that would save the owners enough money to make a deal worthwhile. And, and finally, after kind of months of negotiations and back and forth, the in- introduction of a force majeure into the CBA, the changing of the revenue share that had been agreed in February, the league and the players came to an agreement with the threat of a lockout looming and decided that they, they were able to come back to play. And, and that'll begin on July 8th. And what has to be appreciated with that synopsis was just how ugly this got. At what point the players were going to lose health benefits. No, this is not Major League Baseball. This is Major League Soccer, where it got very ugly between the players and the owners. How bad did it hurt the relationship? Well, it's not great. Um, I think, you know, ultimately, when we went back and reported out what had occurred during the course of negotiation, what we heard time and time again from the players was that the process itself, less than the terms of the deal, the specifics of the negotiation, the process, the way the league handled themselves had really turned them off. And it was a a surprise to players because the CBA negotiation this winter had gone exceedingly well by all accounts. Uh, Very, very different than the negotiations that had occurred back in 2015 that, you know, nearly ended in a strike. And they felt that the league and the players were finally kind of partners in a deal. So the tone that MLS struck early on, which was one, as the players describe it, one in which they, you know, they didn't quite understand the situation that the league was in and, you know, they were going to have to give money back. They felt was kind of that they were being talked down to and told how things had to be. They understood that negotiations get tough during collective bargaining, but they felt that holding the pandemic over their head and using it as a leverage point was a bit too far. And especially during the course of a negotiation where they felt they had given in multiple areas that the league asked. And so by the end of those negotiations, after the lockout threat, a lot of players felt that the relationship between the league and the players was broken and that it'll take some time for those bruises to heal. The question is whether those bruises will last for five years, the life of this this current CBA agreement. Thank you to Paul Tenario for making sense out of all of that. Richard, why don't we talk to Luis Robles? All right, as we said at the top, we now have Luis Robles, who is part of Inter Miami. And I think MLS fans will know played for the New York Red Bulls for eight seasons, including three supporters' shields. And Luis, first, thanks for being on. And let's start off with a, um, a macro question. This is probably unlike any other experience that you've had as a professional athlete over the last three months. What for you have been the most noticeable challenges in terms of dealing with COVID-19 and everything that's come with it? Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is the uncertainty. Just not knowing how long this is going to last and the lasting effects, not only on my job, the season, but then, of course, just our lives and how that's going to have this sort of change or the differences that come with it. I, I think 
just as I think about all of it as a whole, it, it really just comes down to the uncertainty of, of COVID-19. What were the conversations amongst players in that uncertain time trying to figure out what the future of the season and the league would be? Man, it, that that was the tough part because in February, after a process that took about 18 months, the league and the Players Association agreed to a CBA that that was such a positive experience throughout the conversations as we tried to find a deal. It really seemed as if we had turned a page and the idea of us having a relationship and working as partners came to fruition, at least from my experience being at the negotiation table and contrasting it to my experience in 2015, it was it was vastly improved. And for us to arrive at this sort of paramount deal was not only positive for the players and all of the time and commitment that we put into the process, but equally important for the league. Because as we're going into this sort of anniversary season, there was so much momentum going into the season of Major League Soccer. And personally, at least, I got to experience some of that while being with Inter-Miami and an expansion team, and not just an expansion team coming into the league, but an expansion team with, with a, a very high-profile owner in David Beckham. Luis, you're on the MLSPA executive board, and you know we're sort of now heading into a, uh, a new frontier regarding the relationship between the Players Association and the league, at least for this near term. How would you characterize where the players stand regarding what it ultimately agreed to with MLS? Well, I think there's a lot of pride within our group because when we look at the commitment we brought to the process and the dedication and resolve that each player showed throughout the process, I felt like RPA demonstrated that it truly is the voice of the players. And when you look at just the dynamics of the negotiation, there were some really challenging times. And yet the players really galvanized together in a way that we've never seen before. And I think not only did it empower us and feel like as a PA, we are making strides, but I felt like the players were such a part of this process and such an intimate level that they really saw the power of the PA. Now, I'm not going to pretend as if it was a smooth process. There were definitely some bumps along the way. And, and even the spectrum of analysis post uh, is pretty broad. You know, Some guys are going to look at the experience and, and maybe have a bitter taste in their mouth. And, and other guys on the other end of the spectrum are going to feel like that was a very hard-fought battle. We got to an acceptable deal. And it has at least put us in a position that doesn't compromise our future while also allowing us to experience some of the fruit today uh, in our lives in 2020. Louise, I want to get your reaction to this. When it comes to sort of leverage, it would strike me that a league such as the Premier League or La Liga or perhaps even the Bundesliga, if, if they're in similar situations, because the television contracts are larger because of the viewership, at least sort of on a per capita basis is larger. Maybe perhaps even that the, the players are just more well-known globally. It strike me that those players would have more leverage than MLS players. Did you feel that you were negotiating from any place of strength or did you feel that the league was always negotiating from a place of strength? 
I guess when you contrast this to those other leagues, there's there's really little argument that I can make to say that we're on the same level, at least from a revenue standpoint and even a popularity standpoint. But I'm really proud of the work that this league has put in over the last 25 years to even get to this position. When you look at 1994, the World Cup coming to America, that was really the precipice of all of it. And so that was the beginning of, of putting together Major League Soccer. And then for us to even survive contraction the way that we did early in 2000, to then get to the point where we are now, uh, speaks a lot to the minds behind the business. And yet, when you look at where we stand as a PA, we, we didn't exist at the advent of the league. And slowly, as we did come into existence, we were fighting over things like per diem and uh, middle seats and what preseason looks like or what the life on the road looks like. And yet now you fast forward to 2020 and we're fighting over revenue share, which is, which is an exciting thing for not only us, but I think also for the league, because in order for the league to even have that conversation, they must be doing well. Right. And so I think when you look at the last negotiation CBA wise that ended in February, what was exciting for us is that though it's not a perfect solution to revenue share for the first time in our history as a PA and even the first time the relationship with the league and the PA, we were able to have that conversation. And I think that's really what has put other leagues in the United States um, so far ahead when you look at the NBA and you look at the NFL and, and just where they're at in terms of revenue share. And then even when you want to look at globally, how the success of those leagues have translated into bigger contracts, those bigger contracts and that global awareness has translated at least into leverage when it comes to the negotiation table. So it can be said that those guys do have that. But going through our experience, the one thing that I noticed more than anything to create any sort of leverage that we had was we had to be, uh, we had to stand together. There had to be a solidarity in our voice. There had to be unity in the process. And so you know, the debate can go on to how much leverage we had, but I think whatever existed, we're able to utilize because of our solidarity. And of course, when you also look at the context of all of it, like I'm sure the context helped as well, right? It's such a uncertain time with a lot going on, which then gives a little bit more sway in, in at least the, the court of public opinion as to where the players stand and what the owners could have done, uh, which then leads to a little bit more sensitivity. So I think these are all things that we consider. And I think these are all things that, that we sort of utilize in the process to create whatever leverage was there. How is that solidarity, to be frank, possible given the MLS is unique in that the disparity between the high earners and the average players is greater than any league in the world. And we know that a global pandemic exacerbates some financial realities for people. So how were you able to create that buy-in on both ends of the financial spectrum? Well, I think the first thing we realized is that we're all human beings. And so within all of us, even though our bank accounts may be differently, there's the desire to, to be a part of this community, to help grow this community. And within the community of Major League Soccer, there's also just a micro community that's the PA. And so during this process, it just required the board and the leadership to listen to a lot of people. And that's fine. I mean, the one thing that, that we had during self-quarantine was time. Uh, it made us 
make a lot of phone calls. We spend a lot of time listening and listening and listening. And I think through that, we're able to gauge where players were at, what their appetite was for risk and, and really taking this to the brink, but also hearing what they're struggling with. And I think through that process, because it's so focused on humans and, and what it is that their needs are, uh, there's just an affinity towards one another. And so it, <laughs> it required a lot of time on the phone and it required a lot of conference calls. But because of that, it put us in the best position, not only to understand the needs of the player pool, but then to represent the player pool to the best of our ability, knowing that this deal was going to be us playing defense as opposed to every other deal before where we were playing offense, right? Understanding that concessions feel like losses, but we also had to understand what is a good concession and what's a negative concession. And I think in the end, because we listened to so many voices and we really put their needs at the core of all of it, we're able to have a better understanding of what was acceptable so that when it presented itself, it was worth fighting for. You were on the chat group with the medical team of the league. So you clearly educated yourself on what medical officials were calling for when it came to temperature checks and testing and being inside a quarantine or a bubble. From your perspective, can you give us a sense of where you think the league stands on the medical end of the return to play plan? Well, I think health and safety is going to be paramount for players. And they made that very, very clear that though they don't have all the answers now because their guidance is being led by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birks and all the health experts that are really at the the forefront of, of what's going on when it comes to battling the pandemic, I think it gives a little bit of assurance that, okay, like, you know, they are, they're definitely looking at every possible scenario and doing their best to come up with solutions. And yet there still are some questions, but I guess from our standpoint, it was also important for us as a PA to have our own panel of health experts. And as we brought our concerns to our health experts, they raised some concerns that, uh, that will have to be addressed by the league. But they also said that from everything that they've seen, this is a good plan. And as they continue to move forward with this plan, I think they'll continue to iron out the wrinkles. But I I do believe at the core of it, it is a business, right? So they want to be able to get the league back up and running. But again, that business is filled with human beings. And so they're doing everything they can to make sure that they not only create the safest environment, but an environment that allows for questions, allows for concerns that can be addressed to the best of their ability so that players do feel safe. Apologies in advance, full disclosure. Donovan Bennett, the journalist, is not asking this question. Donovan Bennett, the 15-year-old with the Adidas Predators and Adidas Precisions, is asking this question. Okay. What was David Beckham like throughout this period? Like, What were those conversations like? I actually d- I didn't have much interaction with David uh, during this process, and I think that's just part of the dynamic as we go through all of it. I will say I had a lot of interaction with David before this started. And it was actually the week going into our home opener that I saw David a lot. And I think anyone can attest on my team. They would definitely have my back on this. This guy is just so cool. Like he is <laughs> like everything that you imagine this guy is, he's just like, so he exceeds it. Like he, he's not only just a genuine guy, he's very engaging. He wants to know what your feelings are towards things, what your thoughts are towards things. And, and he, 
presents himself in a way that he cares, which is amazing. And, and I feel like you, you can't be superficial and you can't fake that. And so I, I will say that my first impression of him was this guy's just the coolest guy on the planet. And uh, our interactions have been great. And I'm sure going through all of it, it's been a different experience for him. But I will say that when it was all said and done, he did reach out and he sent a text and he said right away, like, hey, this was a very important process. And, and I'm glad that you're able to be a part of it. And we're also really excited to, to have the season uh, continue. But we just want you to know that as owners, we support the team. We support every, all the players' needs. And whatever you guys need, please reach out during this uh, this period of uncertainty, especially now they're asking us to go to Orlando for a few weeks away from our family. Whatever we can do to help your family feel uh, at home and welcomed and safe, uh, we're here for you. So, I mean, I think that's pretty awesome from him. Yes, probably Luis, a pretty good guy to borrow clothes from <laughs> or, a Ferrari, or a Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> one of those two work out yeah, well. Yeah, uh, pretty much anything, <laughs> right? anything you can think of. I have one last one from me, and that's this is certainly a really interesting topic whenever we talk to professional athletes because it's, I imagine, something that you you think about and, and everybody in your sort of players uh, group um, this would impact. The leagues in Europe, Luis, have not announced the names of specific players or personnel who have tested for positive for COVID-19. They have announced like positive tests in the league. And then sometimes the teams themselves will announce that we have two or three people who tested positive as a player. And there are certainly issues of privacy involved here. How do you just feel philosophically about what the league should announce? Should some players end up testing positive for COVID-19? So I can say from my own experience, there have been players within our league, not on our team, but within our league that have tested positive and I, I just didn't want to know the names. And mostly because I respect their privacy. You know, I can't even imagine what they're going through at this moment. But I'm also confident that their medical staff and that organization is doing everything they can to support that player and help guide them through this process. And then the other part is I, I just don't want my perception of them to change. You know, like... I guess even if they go through experience like that, I don't want to look at that player. And my first thought at the, the next time I see him is like, oh, they had, you know, COVID. You know, I just want to see that player for, for who that person is. And so even as players, uh, or at least there's been mentions on social media about this team having a player test positive, my hope is that that player is healthy and well and that the organization is doing everything they can to support that player. But I feel no desire to know who that is. And mostly because of those two reasons. I respect their privacy and I don't in any way want my thinking to change just because they had something. I simply want to see that player for who they are as a competitor, as a human being, and that's that. The good news is is now that we can start having conversations about through balls and great defensive challenges and not about negotiations and testing MLS is back literally with the MLS is back tournament. Take me through the process of how that tournament and how it's going to work came to be and how the players are feeling about something that's somewhat unique, having this tournament at the kind of beginning of the regular season, but also knowing that, you know, there's going to be games later in the season with real consequence as well. 
I mean, I know that it's the league's intention to play games afterwards, but I'm not even sure if that's a guarantee yet. I think with all the information coming out at real time, they're doing their best to create some sort of structure and certainty, but they still have to wait and see, you know, what that looks like. But going back to the first part of the question, when it comes to this tournament, there's a wide array of feeling towards this tournament. And I guess the way that I see it is it's just an imperfect solution in a very, very difficult time. And for the league to be able to fulfill certain national TV contracts, for them to be able to recover some of their revenue, which is important going forward, not only for the owners, but for the league and their viability, this is what they came up with. And I think having a partner like Disney helps a lot because, of course, they own ESPN. But I'm sure even for their other broadcast partners, they're looking for live sports. Right? I mean, definitely, I think we can all agree that over the last three months, there's been a lot of challenges. And though it's not as big as some of the larger challenges, not being able to watch sports on TV is, is definitely something that we've had to adjust to. And so now we have MLS coming back. I mean, Bundesliga came back and now Premier League's coming back. MLS will be the first major American sport to be back on TV. And so that's just an attempt not only to bring that spirit back among their supporters, but maybe even capture some new audiences. And as we go into this tournament, it's, it's going to be World Cup style. And we'll find out who our opponents are, who we're grouped with. And then the, the top two from each group will advance the knockout round. I believe there's four wild cards that will advance as well to the round of 16. And then from there, it's just one-offs until they, they crown a champion. So <laughs> this is new territory, right? There's no playbook for this. But you do see that there's certain, uh, certain hopes that the league is trying to accomplish, not only through this tournament, but through this next chapter of the season. And I'd imagine they're dealing with so much, right? Because this season, going into to, to year 25, there was real momentum. There was so much excitement, not only about the season and the new players coming in and the new franchises coming in, but just the trajectory of Major League Soccer. And as it continues to, to sort of claw away market share, this was going to be a big year for us. And yet, no one could have saw this coming. And so as we get back to this tournament, I was, let me, let me say this as, as briefly as I can. When this deal went down, I think not only were we happy that the deal is done, but we were just happy to get back to playing. And it was an incredibly interesting negotiation, this backdrop of, of the pandemic. And then you're asking these players to, to really do something that we're amateurs at. And if it wasn't for the PA leading us and bringing the sort of uh, guidance that they brought, it's really just a bunch of, of soccer players trying to negotiate a good deal against actual businessmen. And yet through this process, you could really see not only the, um, the strength of human spirit, but then just a community. I mean, not only uh, is our player pool made up of a very, very diverse, seven, over 700 players from all over the world, but then you have a bargaining committee of over 80 players that you know, are doing their best, having conversations, trying to really reflect the opinions of their team, to then having the executive board who uh, is doing everything they can to, to really capture the entire perspective of the player pool, to then go into this very, very challenging negotiation. And then for us to come out on the other end with the deal that we did, I don't think there's really a winner in the negotiation because one, the players recognize that there's, there's more serious and urgent problems that are going on in the world than, than sport and, and then the league. But we also know that we can be a part of what's going on 
not only in our communities by using our platforms as players to be a part of the healing and be a part of the process. And if that means MLS's back tournament is the way that we do it, okay, you know, so be it. Because I'll go back to my first point. Now that the deal is done, guys want to play. They want to be back on the field. They want to be playing. And even though it's not, it's not a perfect solution, uh, I do think it's a way for us to get back on the field and compete and, and play for our organizations. So this offseason when you were doing the beep test, trying to get from station to station, I'm sure in your mind you weren't thinking, man, I got to lift the MLS's back cup. That, 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 that wasn't a motivating factor. First off, I'm a goalkeeper, so that means I am excluded. I am exempt from any beat test, right? Like, I okay. cannot stand running. And one thing that's changed about my life during quarantine is I have this GPS unit that I have to, like, do this training regimen, and it's all focused on running. And so every morning I'm just waking up dreading. But, I mean, I have to imagine there's some benefits to it. I do feel like I've slimmed down a little bit. But, man, beat test and, and my name, they just don't go together. So uh, <laughs> when you say that, you lost me right away. I, sh- I should have known my audience a little bit better. I'm not talking to uh, a holding midfielder. But that name being etched on the MLS's back cup is not something you dreamed of when you were a little kid. I know players want to play, your competitors. But do players care in the same way they would for the other trophies? Because all trophies aren't really created equal. It's definitely new, right? It's definitely territory that we've never been before. But I have to imagine, just maybe speaking for myself or even the guys that are on my team in the locker room, at the end of the day, it's about competing. And that's what guys want to do. And that's where we're having fun is when we play small-sided games and and, and we, the joy of playing small-sided games is back it is an amazing feeling. And so I know right now it may not seem ideal, it may not seem perfect, but once we get there and once we're in that competitive environment, I'm sure guys are, are, gonna, are not only going to give it their best, but they're going to leave it on the field not only for their teammates, uh, but for their organizations. Well, I hope for your sake that all of that – non-beep test fitness pays off um, <laughs> and you live out your boyhood dream of having your name on the MLS is back up. Thank you so much for living out another boyhood dream, I'm sure, joining us on the Sports on Pause podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Donovan, it's time for our last word segment where we pass on something interesting that uh, we have seen during the week regarding COVID-19 and I'll pass on Uh, Two quick ones. First, Vox.com had a piece on the safety of outdoor patios. Seven questions answered. That's obviously going to be incredibly important. The weather's beautiful. People are going to want to go outside, get some drinks, get some food. Read that Vox piece by Alex Abdad Santos on um, what precautions you can take, how you can maximize your own safety if you're thinking about um, heading to an outdoor patio. The other piece, which widely shared for sure, the New York Times did a piece called How the Virus Won. A really impressive graphical portrayal of how COVID-19 spread across America in a short period of time. What do you have, Donovan? Yeah, well, from my list of amazing options that Dan Lormer provides us every week, uh, it's a piece in The Atlantic, The Dudes Who Won't Wear Masks. And one of the ways you can protect yourself while not eating or drinking on a patio is wearing a mask to and from. I was searching online this week, the hashtag, I don't know if you saw it, Richard, 
Karen's Gone Wild, just people losing it because they didn't want to wear a mask in a public space. And Julia Marcus, who is an epidemiologist and a professor at Harvard Medical School, breaks down in this Atlantic piece why people are so reticent to wear masks, but maybe as an approach, shaming them is not the best alternative and gave some other solutions. So give that a read. Wearing a mask is not really important for yourself. It's actually more important for others. So in that, we say, please, please stay safe, which means not just taking care of yourself, but taking care of others. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.